0: Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fifth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the impact of the sexual revolution, the death of civility, the meaning of evolution, our conception of God, the question of why some countries succeed and others fail, and the effect of the digital world on our brains. It was only a matter of time. There is some unwritten law of the universe that states that given an infinite amount of time, a podcast about books of ideas must at some point do an episode about the idea of books. And so it is that now in our fifth series of Reading Our Times, we come to talk about reading itself, because reading itself is changing. We are still, contrary to some claims, a highly literate society, but what we read and where we read it has changed considerably over a remarkably short time. Whereas once we read books and newspapers and read them whole, the world is now mediated to us through screens, usually in much smaller gobbits. Does this matter? Are screens really dumbing us down? How is the digital world changing our minds? Marianne Wolfe is the UCLA Professor in Residence of Education, Director of the UCLA Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners and Social Justice, and the Chapman University Presidential Fellow Professor of Citizenship and Public Service. She's a world expert on reading and neuroscience, and her latest book is called, Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. Marianne, welcome to Reading Our Times.
1: It's truly my pleasure to be with you, Nick. The more I heard about all that you do, the more excited I was to have this rather unique conversation.
0: Thank you very much. Well, that certainly augurs very well. Before we launch into reading, I want to place a bit of context in reading. You say early on in the book, really importantly, speech and language are natural to the human animal, but reading is not. What difference does that make to the way we approach reading?
1: So the greatest concerns and the greatest hopes that I have for the future of reading begins with, if you will, the origin story. And the origin story is that, just as you said, the brain is equipped with speech, language, vision, cognition, affect, but it is not equipped with a single gene or a single one region For reading. Reading has to be created. We didn't invent speech, but we invented reading. And so what the brain does for invented cultural new cognitive capacities, it has to create a new circuit. Now, a circuit can be very, very simple as reading is in the beginning but it has to be taught to become that circuit. If it doesn't exist, it has to be taught to learn to connect parts that were never connected before. That means it has both what I call an Achilles strength, because it can be elaborated and reflect all these environmental inputs, or it can be very, very simple and, in fact, not become elaborated for the same reason.
0: That's really important, isn't it? Because as I understand you, that means that because we are naturally evolved to speak, that's only going to be changed to a degree by our context and our environment. But because we're not naturally evolved to read, The context, the environment in which we're born into and which shapes us is going to have an enormous effect on on that circuit, isn't it?
1: Absolutely correct. And this is one of the less known changes that are happening imperceptibly to everyone, including you, Nick, including me. Mm. Uh, How many hours do you spend on a screen?
0: I don't like to imagine it, but it's a lot.
1: It's a lot. And you see, this is a very important to know. The attributes of the medium that we use most are going to be reflected in how we read. Joseph Epstein even had a quote, we are what we read. I add to that, we are both what we read and how we read and how we read is influenced by upon what we read.
0: Well, I definitely want to home in on this issue of the way in which the digital world is changing our brains, but by way of getting there, I want to explore reading a little bit more detail, in particular your concept throughout the book of deep reading. You keep on talking about deep reading. Tell us what Mm -hmm. deep reading is.
1: So, when I talk to you about the origin story of reading, It begins with this very, very basic uh, decoding circuit, but it's not connected to the very sophisticated cognitive, linguistic, and affective processes. Now, as we become more and more, if you will, fluent, we don't need to give time to decoding the connections, but what we then do is we begin to accrue more and more information about the words themselves. And that's when we begin to have what I would call a fluent comprehending brain, but not yet a deep reading brain. The deep reading is when we are fast enough to understand what we're reading. What happens is we begin to be able to connect. And we're we human beings are analogical beings. That's from the very start. We're always connecting. That's what the first deep reading processes really do. They connect whatever the background knowledge is to the new knowledge. But then something very important happens. We have a set of thinking skills connected to analogy that allow us to infer and we infer what that means based on what we already know, but based on our ability to judge, to discern whether what we're inferring is true or not true. And so our ability to discern the truth of what we're reading is a process that takes time. And the inference is going on and and we're bringing all this information And then we put it through two filters, let's say. The filter that I'm most concerned about in modern culture is critical analysis. After we we make these inferences, we have to analyze it. And we have to really figure out what does this mean? What does the author mean? Is there something underlying it? Is this real information? Is it? misinformation? Is it intentional disinformation, for example? Now, I said there were two. There's another aspect that is so important, and that's whether we call it empathy or perspective taking. One of the most beautiful aspects of deep reading is that it lets us leave our own perspectives behind and enter the thoughts and feelings of others the theologian John Donne, who was my teacher, always used the term passing over, that one of the most important, if you will, gifts of being a human is our ability to leave ourselves behind and enter the thoughts of others, the feelings of others. Now, that dimension can be very positive, but it can also be negative. And I want to suggest to you one of my worries here. We have the ability to infer, but our emotions can be raised as well in negative ways. And right now, you see information intentionally being used to arouse considerable emotion. And Mm -hmm. those emotions can be hatred. By repetition and intentional arousal, We can have our emotions overcome our critical analysis ability. So when I say there are these two very, very important aspects of deep reading, what I mean is that we are given these capacities, but we have to recognize that they can be misused. Mm -hmm. If we do not take critical analysis extremely seriously, everything I've said takes milliseconds, but collectively, if we don't give those milliseconds, if we're stuck in arousal for example, Mm. we never really make it to critical analysis, much less reflection or insight.
0: So, deep reading helps us form attention, it helps us focus, it helps us develop empathy, it helps with memory. I'm interested to know the extent to which this is unique or particularly associated with reading as opposed to other visual inputs. So there's a British literary critic called John Carey, who um, is a professor of Mm -hmm. literature at Oxford and has done a great deal in promoting reading. And in one of his books, he talks about how it's the imperfection of the written word as a medium that makes it so productive In generating our empathy a film just presents you with so much stimulation you don't need to think your way into it whereas a book demands Mm -hmm. more of you and therefore is better at generating attention and focus and empathy Mm -hmm. is that right
1: i would agree wholeheartedly with what he's talking about with the word charles taylor has written a great deal about language as well And he actually went back to Humboldt, and Humboldt, well before Chomsky, was talking about how the word is so productive in the sense that John Kerry is saying, so productive because it's always an attempt to place our thought into the imprecise but ever-moving aspect of what a word does. We have this crude instrument that we begin with, and through writing and through reading, we're, as Charles Taylor says, it's like this motor that pushes us ever closer to what the meaning is. But it's always an approximation, Mm. and that demands work from us. So, what John Carey is really saying is that words make us work. We have Mm. to go underneath the surface of words. And so, we are more participatory than in a film. Now, I love film. I love audiobooks, but neither of them give me the workout. (laughs) A film actually hastens us along. And what that does is very different. We still can grasp meaning and have insights and and have perspective, but it's a different dimension to what the great activity that words demand of us.
0: There's another very important point I want us to touch on briefly before we move wholesale into the digital world, which is the importance of physicality of mm-hmm. reading and the, for want of a better word, the element of communion that there is involved mm. there. You talk about the, at one point, of the physical and temporal thereness of a book, the way mm-hmm. in which so many children are taught to appreciate mm-hmm. reading by sitting on a parent or a carer's mm-hmm. lap. So that's the physicality. And you also say at one point, the crucial condition for human language learning is joint attention. Mm-hmm. And you imagine a child sitting on a parent's lap both Mm -hmm. of them attending to the physical Mm -hmm. book in front of them. That Mm -hmm. embeds this whole deep reading process in a moment of physicality and communion, which is really important, isn't it?
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, there are so many dimensions to this, but from a developmental viewpoint, I want to ensure that people realize that the physicality touch also conveys some of that affective dimension to reading from the very start one of the things that i hope most for young children is that they have someone who literally under the crook of an arm holds them so they are associating making their first associations with reading with touch but you mentioned attention and this is what really has to be stated in several ways The first is the quality of attention. How the child learns to attend is helped so much by being with an adult or with a loved one. But the quality of attention is also something that's really important because it is connected ultimately to whether we really remember and consolidate what we're reading in memory or not. So whether we're talking about a young child or you and me, the quality of attention that we give what we read will either encourage us to consolidate that aspect of our reading in our memory or because we don't have that quality or we're going so fast, we're skimming that we, we literally don't have time to have memory involved in the same way. Yeah. So the, the physicality adds to the earliest associations. There's this temporality, of course, because words in books slow you down rather than hasten you, which a screen does, but they also are giving you this imperceptible spatial quality to your reading that is not in other mediums.
0: Let's move on to the territory of where we are today in the digital world. You say early on in the book, referring to your previous book, Proust and the Squid, in the seven years it taken me how to describe how the brain had learned to read over its 6,000-year history, our entire literacy-based culture had begun its transformation into a very different digitally-based culture, and you wrote those words, I'm guessing, about 12, 14 years ago.
1: I was shocked.
0: (laughs) I bet you were, and perhaps even more so today. Describe briefly, effectively, what has happened.
1: There are so many different things I can tell you, but let me give you two. One very simple one and one very huge one. The simple one is like the most recent Gallup poll is showing that adults in the United States are reading. they, They read a lot, but in terms of books, the reading has just decreased immensely. And many people don't even read a single book in a year. This is new. And Reader's Digest and London Financial Times both interviewed me about what is going on with our adults. And, and it's linked to the cognitive patience that a book requires. You know, reading something, skimming it on a screen doesn't require... So I write in Reader Come Home, I'm very concerned about the cognitive impatience that I think we, we have. Well, that's a little tiny statistic, if you mm. will, but a much more empirically based one is a study that was done as what we call a meta-analysis in which 50 studies were pulled together. So you have over 170,000 subjects being represented of young adults. And what they did was they simply looked at studies that compared the ability to comprehend questions after a passage is read on either print or a screen by young adults. And what they found was that the biggest ability to follow the plot and get any details and that kind of comprehension was with print, not with the screen. A more, if you will, insidious result was when they looked only at the digital natives, the young people, the, the people who were studied last. And that group, you might think, would do better on the screen because they are pure digital natives they had even more of a superiority effect for print. Even though they, when asked, thought they were better on the screen. Why? Because they said, well, we do better on the screen because we're faster. And therein lies the real underpinning of the statistic. When you skim, you literally skim. You miss details, you miss words, you miss inside the reading brain. When I interpret that, it's you are not giving enough time and attention to the deep reading processes. So you are not able to be as astute in terms of understanding.
0: One of the statistics that really struck me from your book was that, in actual fact, the amount of text we're reading today hasn't changed considerably. I was really surprised about that.
1: We're reading a lot.
0: But what's (laughs) changed, of course, is, as you say, what we're reading and where we're reading and how we're reading it.
1: Right. All of those. Yeah.
0: And the result of that is, going back to an earlier part of our conversation, a reduced ability to analyze critically and mm-hmm. an increased vulnerability to, if you like, emotionally laden messages. is that exactly. the right way of putting it?
1: Right. You see what's happening if you just think about what deep reading demands, it demands time. And if you are paralyzed or arrested by the arousal of all these negative emotions, you won't be giving time. To be critically analytic and one of the things that's happened in the united states and i'm sure well it's happening throughout europe england is the rise of these very polarizing sources of information and they are profit driven they make profit by arousal and repetition and the best for our humanity demands multiple voices, multiple perspectives, and empathy for others. Not just having a population that's being bombarded by repetition after repetition after repetition mm. of disinformation. Mm. And it's it's no longer misinformation, it's intentional disinformation. And we're susceptible, we're vulnerable. And the more we skim, the more we just go to the familiar sources, the less likely we are to be critically analytic or truly empathic. Yeah. And that leads to danger, le- danger, demagoguery and forces against democracy.
0: And we're talking about adults. I mean, this is a, this is serious. But we haven't really, at least in this part of the conversation, talked about the impact this can have on children because yes. you know, the point you're making there is that adults, mm-hmm. even if they've been brought up on a diet of books, if that yeah. diet changes to a diet of bite-sized screen-based information, they become vulnerable. But if a child has never known that... There They're is not a, going to
1: develop it.
0: Not going to develop it. And this is a perhaps a slightly apocalyptic analogy, but the one of the... Parallels that came into my mind when reading your chapter on the impact of screens on very young children was what happened to the Ceausescu orphans in the Mm -hmm. 1980s. I don't know if you remember there were hospitals and hospitals for orphans who were deliberately separated from parents all at the time and left unattended in orphanages, yes. and the idea that without forming local attachments, mm-hmm. they would subsequently form attachments to the state and to mm-hmm. the dictator. And that subsequently mm-hmm. showed up in MRI scans and CAT scans, a serious neurological unsdevelopment. You mm-hmm. say at one point, you know, the iPad is the new pacifier, the new dummy mm-hmm. in English, in, right. in, in British English. Right. That's yeah. going to have a mm-hmm. worrying effect on the actual circuitry yeah. of young brains.
1: Yeah. I'm not going to be apocalyptic, Nick. But what I am going to be is cautionary. There have been studies by a colleague of mine, John Hutton in Cincinnati. He's a neuroscientist, a pediatric uh, neurologist. And he did a study in which he compared brain activation of language regions when a child is being read to by a parent versus hearing a recording of that same story Versus an iPad version where the story is not a graphic novel, but like a cartoon. And the brain activation is most active when the child is being read to by the adult. He calls this the Goldilocks effects. Audio is second and third is the, the iPad. Mm. Being a human with a human is a good thing with reading. (laughs) You know, you hate to have a a sticker that says humans matter, (laughs) but we do. And just going back to the touch, the physicality, all it's not just touch and physicality. It's also seeing how the child's attention is or is not moving, whether they understand or they don't understand. No digital device, which is just giving it all and moving fast is going to stop and say oh remember when we saw a bear and then have all these things become part of the background knowledge now that does not exclude digital knowledge it doesn't exclude programming or coding and that's where i see teaching kids you know how to code and how to do all these things at a young age that's not forbidden in my world my world if you will my ideal world is when these two parallel tracks of development can complement each other. You specifically advocate a
0: biliterate brain, don't you? You're very, very clear about that.
1: Yes, but not when one overtakes the other and that's all they get. You know, so it's a hybrid world.
0: There's a danger that you and I might agree too much on all this stuff, because this is a book's podcast. So let me put to you a devil's advocate position. You referenced Socrates several times. Yes. And his worry that the move from an oral culture to a written culture would destroy human memory. It would be a recipe for forgetting. Yeah. I think you reference T.S. Eliot on at least one occasion, this line from Burt Norton distracted from distraction by distraction. Oh, oh, yeah. By
1: distraction, um, yeah. which is
0: writing in the mid 30s. And there's yeah. a, a book published recently by Geoffrey Roberts on Stalin's library, pointing out that Stalin was a great reader, an avid, keen reader who annotated books and lots of marginalia there. Now, they're, they're three pretty random examples, but they all catalyze the question maybe we're taking this a bit seriously. You know, I Eliot's mean, worried about distraction in 1935, for goodness sake, and society survives. Stalin was hardly the most empathetic of individuals. And Socrates yes. is worrying about this two and a half thousand years ago. Is there a yeah. chance that you and I are overly anxious about all this? No. <laughs> I sorted that one out then.
1: <laughs> no, we have to be the, um, you know, it's my job to say, We must be wise. You know, no matter where we are in history, we can find people. You know, Henry David Thoreau was very worried about all the the ways that we're just uh, slaves to uh, newspapers and news that that is always old by the time we read it. Well, that's going to be true, but never before have we had the level of distraction Never before have we had our children, our youngest children, having their attention hyper-stimulated to such a point where where in neuroscience they're called dopamine lollipops. These kids are so stimulated. And what happens when they're overstimulated? They go off and say, I'm bored. Of course. I'm bored. Bored Boredom. Now remember what Walter Benjamin said that, Boredom is the hatchbird for the imagination. Well, these kids don't look at boredom as anything but something they don't want. So they want that lollipop back. They want to be overstimulated. And we're doing that to our children. And so my job is to answer you, no, we're not exaggerating the issues so that the society will look and redress and technology will be a piece of redressing it we can use technology better we can teach digital wisdom and so we we really have a conundrum if you will we're mm-hmm. reading more and 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 comprehending and appreciating and immersing less so what i don't want to forget is the great beauty that can be the, the great beauty of deep reading and the the powerful nature of that sanctuary where we can have the time to think our own best thoughts. Mm. Well, that's what Proust said. But what a terrible, pitiful human race it would be if if all we're doing is racing in every dimension and not giving ourselves time to reflect and have our best insights. We're neglecting ourselves Mm. by that.
0: Mm. One final question or reflection from you. You say towards the end of the book, deep reading is always about connection. Connecting what we know to what we read, what we read to what we feel, what we feel to what we think, and how we think to how we live out our lives in a connected world. Now, I find that very reassuring because my one kind of guilty feeling I have when reading is it's a bit selfish. I'm by myself, I'm Mm. in a room, I'm not paying attention to anything or anyone else that's going there. It's quite a sort of solitary activity. But actually reading your book, it made me realise that superficially it's solitary, but as you say that it's about building connections and it's a way of connecting us to the other. Mm. Can you reflect a bit on what that says about our humanity, our our needs our inclinations what satisfies us what is our good as people
1: so even though i will probably never read every word proust wrote <laughs>
0: <You> <laughs> there <have.
1: laughs> oh gosh there are some lines in his little tiny book called on reading which are so remarkable because they are so true today and it goes directly to your point he said reading is that fertile miracle of communication that takes place without moving from your chair, basically. Mm. But it's the term, the fertile communication. And it's a communication between the author's best thoughts and the reader's best thoughts that then extends and is acted upon. I have quoted, how many people did I quote to you today? They are my friends. Yes, I've never met Charles Taylor. I only wish I, of course, didn't meet T.S. Eliot and all these people like Proust. I'll never be able to meet them, but they have given me something that connects me to other people in ways that I might never have. We would never have spoken, Nick.
0: Mm. We would never have spoken.
1: But it's books that bring the best thoughts of others to ourselves, which we hope will then bring the best thoughts, which is why when you ask me, should we be, you know, your devil's advocate question, should we be worried? Yes, we should be worried because we never want to lose that true kind of connectedness, not the false kind of connectedness that anonymously people speak and say all these sometimes terrible things to each other and sometimes good things to each other. Mm. But that's not the kind of communication that I consider fertile.
0: Yeah. As you quote C.S. Lewis at one point, we read to know that we're not alone.
1: Yes. Yes. Oh, I love Mm. him.
0: The book is called Reader, Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World, Marianne Wolfe, thank you ever so much for speaking to Reading Our Times.
1: Goodbye, Nick.
0: Next week, I'll be speaking to Richard English about his book, Does Terrorism Work? In some ways, it seems to me that it's responses to terrorism that are more likely to have changed history. Tragically, both this century and the last century began with terrible terrorist attacks, state responses to which really changed the world. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner, and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk where you can find all the episodes from the series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.